This podcast is intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. A quick note. There are two available versions of this podcast. One in English as a red note and Spanish as La Nota Roja. If you would prefer to listen in Spanish, you can do so by searching for La Nota Roja in the same podcast app where you downloaded or streamed this episode. The femicide in Juarez is an important story that has never been presented in this way before. To allow English-speaking audiences to hear testimony from families of the victims and Mexican investigators and journalists who studied these events, some interviews have been translated into English by Mexican voice actors. From Imperative Entertainment, this is The Red Note. Let's begin the program. On Valentine's Day 2004, more than 7,500 protesters from 20 countries gathered along the border to protest the government's failure to bring the perpetrators of the Juarez serial murders to justice. Eve Ensler is the author of the Vagina Monologues and the founder of the V-Day movement. She helped organize the protest in 2004. We tried to get amazing people. We bought Sally Field and Jane Fonda, and we had women from the Mexican cast of the Vagina Monologues. We bought thousands of, of, of activists and, and pe women from, from El Paso, and we met up on the border, and then we walked to the center of Juarez and did a huge demonstration. In addition to being the largest demonstration against gender violence the city had ever seen, the V-Day protest was a milestone for another reason. Marching alongside the protesters were Guadalupe Morfin Otero, the head of President Vicente Fox's newly formed commission to investigate the serial murders, and Maria Lopez Urbina, recently appointed by Fox as a special prosecutor to review the conduct of local officials in the investigation. It was an encouraging sign that Mexican authorities were finally getting serious about solving and ending the murder of women in Juarez. Guadalupe Morfin. Look, we had just been appointed not too long ago. I had been appointed on October 17, 2003, and Maria even later. So it was important that we were there. I was very happy to see several activists from Juarez at the U.S. Consulate General in Ciudad Juarez. It was very important for all of us to have the presence of Eve Ensler, who was the author of this work, The Vagina Monologues that I later got the chance to see. Very impressive. And that Jane Fonda was there. Jane Fonda stayed in Hotel Lucerna in the room next to mine. We did this incredible press conference. There were thousands of thousands of press. And Jane Fonda got up to speak. Eve Ensler. I remember 
she got really angry and she said to the press, why does it take me as a celebrity coming here for you to care about the women of Mexico who are being murdered? And I remember at one point in the march, there was a loud explosion and everybody got scared for a second. It was just a, it was just a car backfiring and we were marching towards the bridge. I was on the Juarez side um, with Esther. That's Casa Amiga founder, Esther Chavez-Cano. And all of the people were marching, all the mainly women were marching from over the American side, from El Paso. And it was like, there was a feeling like that women of the world had, it was like we were all together, we had all arrived. We were all there for the women of, of Juarez. We, we were all having their back. And then we took over the streets of Juarez. It was an amazing day. This is episode eight of The Red Note. Ni una menos, ni una más. My name is Lydia Cacho. the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford Anything, wherever you listen. In early 2004, police discovered 12 bodies buried behind a house owned by a state police officer, an alleged lieutenant in La Linea, the enforcement unit of the Juarez cartel. U.S. officials believed that the murders had been carried out by members of the Chihuahua State Police who were following the officer's orders. 13 state police officers on the night shift were arrested in connection with the murders when they reported to work. 
warrants were issued to arrest four more officers who had failed to show up, including a department commander involved in the investigation of the serial murders. Authorities in Chihuahua launched an investigation into the officers working on the night shift. Five police commanders were tied to the 12 victims found earlier that month and fired. In total, 350 law enforcement officers were fired or forced to resign in connection with the scandal, including the state's attorney general. Journalist Diana Washington Valdez. The night shift uh, literally turns uh, what is into hell. You don't ever want to be picked up by the police. We've had, uh, you know, testimonies of uh, women from El Paso being raped by the police. Put them in these paddy wagons, drive them around, rape them, and then bring them back to where they picked them up uh, originally, even with a husband present. Special Federal Prosecutor Maria Lopez Urbina compiled a list of more than 100 current or former officials who had committed torture or other acts of negligence during the serial murders investigations. She called for the immediate punishment of these individuals, which included nearly everyone below the rank of Deputy Attorney General, including former Special Prosecutor Sully Ponce. In March of 2005, Ponce was indicted for official negligence in connection with 47 of the femicide cases. She was found guilty on the charges later that year and ordered to jail. But the verdict was overturned on appeal before Ponce had served a day behind bars. Eventually, all of the other officials named on Lopez Urvina's list were also cleared of any wrongdoing. I remember interviewing Maria Lopez Urbina at her office in Juarez while she was doing her internal affairs investigations. Even though it was an on-the-record interview, the brave prosecutor seemed incredibly distressed. She asked me to go to another small room. She knew she was being spied on by the corrupt police chief and forensic expert. She told me so. Two years later, I met her on a TV program where we were both invited to talk about impunity and gender violence in Mexico. At the end of the program, she told me they had tried to kill her. She received so many death threats for being internal affairs chief, she couldn't handle it anymore. She confessed the real enemy was inside the district attorney's office. Lopez Urbina was recalled to Mexico City. A new prosecutor was sent to take her place and resigned four months later. Federal officials did not send another prosecutor to take her position, and the commission to review 
the female homicide investigation in Juarez was dissolved. Investigators on the other side of the border were also running into obstacles as they tried to make progress in the Juarez serial murders investigation. Federal law enforcement agents from Mexico City had flown to Juarez in the spring of 2003 to meet with local investigators and the FBI's El Paso Bureau Chief Hartwick Crawford. After the Cottonfield murders in 2001, Crawford had taken a special interest in the story of the murdered women in Juarez. Since he appeared on ABC's 2020 to talk about the case, he had tried repeatedly to assist investigators on the other side of the border with very little success. Diana Washington Valdez says that Crawford's involvement gave many activists and families hope that they would finally see progress in the serial murders investigation. Oh yes, uh, there's a lot of excitement, a lot of hope, because you know the reputation of the FBI uh, and the willingness of um, the special agent in charge here to move on behalf of the victims. They saw this as a, a godsend, you know, the, the mothers of the victims, uh, the activists did too, said, ah, oh, finally something, something real is going to happen here. Washington writes that Crawford called a meeting with Mexican officials a huge development in the investigation, and it started to unravel almost as soon as it began. Soon after the meeting, allegations emerged that two of Crawford's contacts in Chihuahua, a racetrack casino owner and the former bishop of Juarez, were involved in money laundering on behalf of Mexico's drug cartels. Crawford and his alleged ties to drug money laundering became front-page news in Mexico after Mexican officials complained that Crawford and the FBI were meddling with Mexico's internal affairs, the U.S. ambassador to the country revoked Crawford's clearance to cross the border in an official capacity. A Justice Department investigation later determined that Crawford's wife had been hired as a marketing consultant by the racetrack owner and was given a free membership at an El Paso country club, neither of which Crawford had disclosed to federal authorities. Well, Harder Crawford, uh, first of all, made the mistake of allowing his wife to be hired by this man who ran a pretty much, well, a gambling operation in Mexico who had a a questionable reputation. And um, for Crawford not to have cleared this with the FBI, the FBI probably would have said, no way, what are you doing? That became the event that smeared uh, the reputation of Hardrick Crawford. And as law enforcement in a position like that, all you have is your reputation. In 2007, Crawford was convicted of lying to federal investigators 
and sentenced to six months in federal prison. For all intents and purposes, the FBI's involvement in the Juarez serial murders investigation was over. It was a stunning reversal for activists and families who were losing their best U.S. ally to finally bring the gender violence in Juarez to an end. But by now, the female homicides in Juarez, fueled by the scandal of the Cottonfield case, were beginning to attract attention outside of Mexico. At the beginning of the 2000s, Amnesty International, the United Nations, the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights, and other women's rights organizations published several damning reports about local investigations into the serial murders of Juarez. The agencies found that officials in Chihuahua had used torture, forced confessions, and other questionable methods in their investigations of Abdel Latif Sharif Sharif, Los Toltecas, and Los Rebeldes. The reports concluded that negligence, arrogance, and indifference on the part of investigators in Chihuahua had helped fuel, quote, the perception that violence against women is not a serious crime. My good friend, Dr. Edgardo Buscaglia, was the one who drafted the UN report demanding that Mexico's government solve a long list of issues regarding the femicides in Juarez. A few weeks ago, I received an email from Edgardo. Hello, Lydia. Do you remember that I came to Mexico in 2003 as the head of the UN mission to review all the legal cases for the femicides? We reviewed all the existing cases up to that moment and entered all links in the judicial system, including the forensic services. Under my direction, we generated a UN report with 120 institutional proposals that was entitled Never Again, but until today the Mexican state violates more than half of our proposals. It is not surprising that these organized crimes with femicides continue to rise. More than 15 years ago, the United Nations and other human rights organizations were giving Mexico's government clear solutions to end the femicides, ones that they accepted but never complied with. In the early 2000s, Eve Ensler wrote a new piece for the Vagina Monologues based on the story of the women of Juarez. Well, every every year, you know, I do an, an additional spotlight um, where we focus on um, some area of the world. We had a year where the spotlight was Juarez. I really wanted that piece to, you know, be a piece that was educational, that moved people, that touched people. It was also a way of educating our activists about what was happening in Juarez and making people aware of it. Each woman is dark, particular, young. Each woman has brown eyes. Each woman is gone. 
There is one girl missing for 10 months. She was 17 when they took her away. She worked in the maquiladora. She stamped thousands of coupons of products she would never afford. $4 a day. They paid her and bussed her to the desert to sleep in freezing shit. It must have been on the way to the bus they took her. It must have been dark outside. It must have lasted until morning. Whatever they did to her, it went on and on. You can tell from the others who showed up without hands or nipples. It must have gone on and on. When she finally reappeared, she was bone, bone, bone. No cute mole above her right eye. No naughty smile, no wavy black hair. Bone, she came back as bone. She and the others in Esther's book, all beautiful, all beginning, all coupons, all faces, all gone. Over the coming years, other writers, filmmakers, musicians, and scholars across the globe began producing works inspired by their outrage over gender violence in Juarez. Three feature films based on the story of the serial murders, Backyard, Border Town, and Virgin of Juarez, were produced in the early 2000s, as well as numerous documentaries. Most notably, Lourdes Portillo's Señorita Extraviada, In 2001, El Paso rock group at the drive-in released a video for its song Invalid Leader Department about the Juarez serial murders. Three years later, the legendary group Los Tigres del Norte recorded their own song Las Muertas de Juarez. In 2008, the Chilean novelist Roberto Bolaño released his final novel, 2666, a sprawling masterpiece that centers around the investigation of the serial murders in Juarez. Many famous male writers made money out of taking the Juarez stories and turning them into novels without conducting a thorough investigation. Some films did the same. These seemingly harmless artistic endeavors induced millions to believe fiction was the truth. The reality of gender violence in Juarez began to be misinterpreted by underground reporters as a result. One of the most important developments regarding gender violence in Mexico involved neither artists nor law enforcement, but vocabulary. The term femicide was coined by the American feminist writer Carol Orlock in the 70s. She argued homicide was a gender-neutral term that didn't accurately describe the horrific acts of killers like Jack the Ripper. Femicide is the murder of women because they are women. 
unlike the usual motives, such as robbery or revenge. Femicides were committed by men who were motivated by misogyny, hatred, sadistic pleasure, the desire to oppress, and the sense of appropriation of a woman's body. According to Veronica Corchado, the development of concepts like femicide was an important milestone in the struggle for women in Mexico to articulate and assert their own rights. I was brought up by a woman, and I don't remember my mom saying or telling me things like, beware of harassment. She did say to me, be wary of men that just want to sleep with you and just that, but not about harassment. And today we've seen that at the main square, it's acknowledged. We can recognize it as women what harassment is, right? The concept of femicide began to gain traction in Mexico thanks to the work of feminist anthropologist Marcela Lagarde. After being elected to the Mexican Congress, Lagarde helped to draft the general law against violence against women and girls, which was passed in 2005. An amendment to the criminal code in 2007 formally criminalized femicide under Mexican federal law and created higher criminal penalties for these offenses than a normal homicide. The codification of femicide into Mexican law helped pave the way for other advances to address the problem of violence against women in Mexico. Years after the murder of her daughter, Lilia Alejandra Garcia, Norma Andrade was now an activist working to end gender violence along the border. She was determined to prove, at any cost, her daughter's murder was not an isolated event. With help from feminist human rights lawyers working with her and her fellow activists, Norma became an expert, studied the legal jargon, and learned how to hold her own in a country of corrupted policemen untouched by the rule of law. Little by little, they taught us how to formally run a meeting, how to start working with the cases, how to put the files together, the name of the girl, her characteristics, where she disappeared, when, what were the conditions. They taught us how to write a letter, how to demand from the prosecutor's office. Later on, they taught us what the human rights were. Some of us knew about rights, but we wouldn't, we wouldn't be able to define what a human right is, what they mean, those human rights we were all entitled to. I mean, they really helped empower us. I met Norma Andrade shortly after her daughter, Lilia Alejandra, was murdered. She's not a tall woman, but her gigantic strength 
led many families in Ciudad Juárez to understand the murderous power of corruption that had hampered any meaningful investigation of the femicides. It was Norma and other mothers turned activists like her who helped journalists, including myself, to understand the real story behind the serial killings in the North. With the knowledge she had acquired from her human rights lawyers, Norma filed a lawsuit against the Mexican government over Lilia Alejandra's case, which was eventually accepted by the Inter-American Commission of Human Rights. But for Veronica Corchado, despite the codification of the term femicide into Mexican law, the verdicts against the Mexican government and the creation of the women's DA's office, there is still more progress to be made. I think on the subject of femicide, disappearance of women, everything, the investigations, even though we do already have a legal framework that is very relevant, very refined, and that the subject of Ciudad Juárez has been an example for the whole country, etc., I do believe that in the matter of the pursuit of justice, it still has many gaps. And maybe what has to be done is written on paper, but in practice, that is not possible. In the U.S., one writer had begun to question whether the concept of femicide was really applicable to the serial murders in Juarez. In 2007, research librarian Molly Molloy was presented with a study that analyzed the rate of female homicides in Juarez. I hadn't really been aware before of the percentage of the victims who were women. For instance, last year, there were about 1,499 people killed in Ciudad Juarez, according to El Diario. 170 were women. It's about 9.5%, which is interesting because if you add up all the numbers for all of the years, it almost always comes out to that basically between 9 and 10%. When I talked about the myth of the femicides in Juarez. It's not to say a myth in terms of something fantastic that never happened, but rather the focus or the way that the story was told was mythological. Women were never the main number of victims. I give talks about the murders, and people still believe that, that most of the people killed in Juarez are women. If you just ask a question, what percentage of the victims in Juarez do you, do you think are women? People will say 40 or 50 percent. It's never been that. I think gender violence is an important thing to study. But if the focus on the gender aspects to the exclusion of other parts of the story the economic and social conditions 
that we as American consumers, both as consumers of drugs and consumers of cheap goods that rely on cheap labor in places like Juarez, if it blinds you to the actual context that these conditions come from, then I think it's a problem. Well, how sad that they see it that way. One of the members of the student collective Uni Unida. Women are seen before and after being murdered as objects. To shrink us as much as possible. Out of hatred. Because they see us as if we were nothing. Then it's not the same as a murder, which has certain kinds of elements, right? To femicide, which is done with scorn against someone else and because they want to do it, have this feeling of wanting to kill us. So it's a sad vision. By 2006, nearly all of the suspects who were responsible for the femicides at least according to authorities in Chihuahua, were behind bars. Abdel Latif Sharif Sharif, the alleged Juarez Ripper, was in solitary confinement at the state penitentiary in Chihuahua City, where he was serving a 20-year sentence for the 1995 murder of Elizabeth Castro. In January 2005, two state judges had sentenced Jesus Manuel Guardado, alias El Tolteca, and three other members of the gang, Los Toltecas, to between 40 and 113 years in prison for the murder of six women. The same day as Los Toltecas were convicted, a judge in Juarez sentenced the five alleged members of Los Rebeldes to between 24 and 40 years each in prison. Originally accused of 17 femicides, the six members of Los Rebeldes were now charged with a half dozen murders. The members of Los Toltecas and Los Rebeldes went to prison still maintaining their innocence. The confessions obtained by authorities on their torture formed the primary basis of conviction for all 10 men. Irene Blanco, the conservative politician who had been Sharif's previous legal representative, was now serving as a federal congresswoman in the state of Quintana Roo. It had been several years since she had last been to visit Abdel Latif Sharif Sharif. We had lost touch because I was working in Mexico City, first in Cancun and then in Mexico City. Then, while I was in New Mexico City, he called me and said that he felt very bad that he had a lot of problems because he had a problem in his knee 
His knee bothered him and had an obvious liver problem. Working with his new legal team, Sharif had filed an injunction in order to secure his release from prison. A hearing on the injunction was scheduled for that Tuesday. Sharif told Blanco that he was supposed to have surgery on his knee the day before the hearing. I said to the human rights people, Sharif can't have surgery. If he has the surgery, he dies in the surgery because they're going to kill him during the operation because the injunction is about to be approved. Sharif was a cornerstone and everything would fall apart again. Everything would crumble. If Sharif went free, what were the drivers that were paid by Sharif doing? I mean, everything would fall apart. Sharif dies on Monday and Tuesday. He was going to receive the injunction against the sentence. News that the man, once feared as the Juarez Reaper, was dead, received only a passing mention in the local press. Sharif's remains went unclaimed by his family in Egypt. He was buried in a public grave at the state's expense. And the one who told me about Sharif's death was Guadalupe Morfinotero. She called me, I was in Cancun, and she said, um, I have to give you a news that's going to hurt you. Sharif died during surgery. He was buried in Chihuahua. Yes, I won't deny it. I felt a deep sadness. Very, very sad. Brought me back all the memories and stuff. Where did this get us? What was the point? You know what was achieved? That it's now said femicide, not homicide. Our forensics laboratories equipped with technicians who handle DNA and all that? Are investigations better done than 20 years ago? I don't think so. What did we achieve or what was achieved? I say nothing.
The Red Note is a production of Imperative Entertainment. It was hosted by Lydia Gacho and written and directed by Craig Whitney. Executive producers are Jason Hoke and Lydia Gacho. Lead producer, it's me, Estefania Bonilla-Hernandez, and producers are Laura Caulfield, Will Wallace, and Craig Whitney. Research and interviews conducted by Alicia Fernandez. Sound recording by Nicolás Aguilar-Limenez and designed by Javier Umpierrez. LA recording engineer is Tom Corkin. Dubbing directed by Rebecca Gomez and performed by Isabel Ireland, Rona Fletcher, Arturo Mercado Jr., and Genaro Vázquez. Music composed by Michael Ramos. Abraham Buendía recording the making of and stills. Our production fixer was René Nava. Production bands were provided by our drivers Arturo and Ricardo Baeza in Ciudad Juárez and in Mexico City by Hugo Ramos. The production accounting supervised by Viridiana Morales and performed by Miguel Torres at Global Entertainment Firm. Insurance provided by Jasmine Alba and Ricardo Carrillo at LCI Seguros. Lorena Olivares is assistant to the director. Legal services provided by Laura Caulfield in the U.S. and in Mexico by Laura Marvan at Marvan Pitol Abogados. The production was coordinated by Minerva Bolaños and supervised by Héctor Subieta. The producers wish to thank Adam Bruso, Dr. Edgardo Buscaglia, Daniel Espinoza Ochoa, Mike Hisi, Adriana Montalvo, Tony Montanieri, and Maria Rosa Ochoa for their gracious help with this podcast. We would especially like to thank Luis Chaparro and Ikae Chituda at the Chihuahua Film Commission and the people of Ciudad Juarez for their hospitality and support during the production. If you enjoyed the Red Note, please rate and review the podcast on whatever platform you listen to. Thanks again for listening. We are joined now by Alicia Fernandez, who conducted the interview with Irene Blanco we heard in today's episode. Alicia, what did Irene tell you about what she did after Sharif's death? When we were taking a break during the interview, Irene told me that after Sharif died, she burned everything. All of the files that had to do with that case... I think it reminds for her like an unsolved issue. She thinks that besides the corruption among the authorities and the rush to make up solutions, the fight against impunity and women's violence has been divided since the beginning because there has been a division even in the people or organizations who are seeking for justice. I also think that she feels that she invested a lot of energy in this case. And 20 years later, the girls continue to disappear. It is as if there is a black curtain that blocks reality. So the murders and violence against women continue to happen and continue without punishment. So when Sharif died, I think she just wanted to turn the page. Thank you for sharing that story, Alicia. The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.